This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. All right, so today on the show, there's two guests coming up for you. The first is Jessica Gale of Sweet Gale Gardens. You may remember her. She's been on before to talk about uh, various topics related to growing and marketing cut flowers. And she's back today to talk about ongoing maintenance in the flower garden. Stuff like ongoing nutrition considerations and how to effectively prune your flowers, as well as harvesting techniques. After that, you'll hear from Charles Levko, who is the Canada Research Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at Lakehead University. Charles joined me to talk a little bit about a really cool workshop on farm internships that's coming up as part of a larger food policy conference in Toronto in October. So that's what's happening in good old episode 88. Let's get to it. My name is Jessica Gale and my farm is Sweet Gale Gardens. I started out as an urban farmer and now I'm moving out to the country and I specialize in cut flowers uh, for sale at market, grocery stores, and I also do special events in a CSA. It's www.sweetgalegardens with an S.com. Jessica Gale of Sweet Gale Gardens, welcome back to the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks, Jordan. Today you suggested we talk uh, about ongoing maintenance of your cut flowers, given that we're kind of smack dab in the middle of summer. Yeah, no, I thought there's a few different things to be thinking about when you're a flower farmer, just like, you know, all my veggie growing friends are thinking about pruning their tomatoes and doing other things like that. Um, I've got sort of my ongoing to-do list uh, beyond uh, the general sort of weeding maintenance and replanting and that sort of thing. I guess we can assume then that you are speaking to the listener who is perhaps still fairly new at growing cut flowers and yet uh, by some miracle they've managed to produce a garden mm-hmm. full of flowers and it's midsummer mm-hmm. and now they've got to make sure they take care of them and harvest them properly. So uh, with that in mind, let's let's proceed. Could could you maybe maybe could you start first with a little bit of uh, uh, about ongoing nutrition? Sure. So, um, with flowers, they're, they're very similar to vegetables, um, in the sort of nutrients that they need. Um, I've read some things that they actually, you know, take a a bit less nutrients than some vegetables, but, um, you know, the beginning of the season, I always start most importantly with a soil test. Um, and so when I'm building my beds, I'm, uh, applying appropriate compost and amendments, Um, to make sure that I'm getting closer to having a a better balanced uh, soil um, that's nice and loose and, um, you know, has good texture and nutrients for my flowers. I really think a yearly, an annual soil test is is pretty Mm. essential. And I've mentioned on the show before, and I, I mentioned it again, because I think it's easy to skip it because it's, finicky you know you've got to bag it up and get it sifted or whatever Mm -hmm. and sent off in the mail and that can be a hassle um or maybe you have a place to bring it but at any rate there's a few Mm -hmm. steps i think for that reason people tend to downplay it or ignore it but i i think it is so crucial to just be every once in a while kind of taking taking us taking stock of what's happening in your soil yeah totally and i think it you know it doesn't have to be you don't have to be hard-lined about it and you know, trying to be balancing your nutrients to an exact science. I'm, I'm fairly on the fence about how much, um, uh, like mineral based amendments, um, should be applied to soils. Like I'm, I do a little bit. Um, but I also, my big thing is, um, 
looking at the organic matter in the soil. And um, I want to see over time in a plot that percentage to go up and I should see it, you know, in the texture of the soil and the seeing an increased amount of soil biology. Um, also not to waste money um, on applying things that you don't need or um, too much of certain things. Um, and this year I even, like I was feeling a little behind uh, in my uh my soil notes and I just was like, you know what? And I, I paid for an organic uh, agronomist to look at my results and to give me some recommendations. And it was, it was very cheap. So yeah, worthwhile investment. Um, as the season goes on, um, after I've, you know, begun planting, um, I try really hard to uh, stick to a regime of, um, I personally like to use um, like a seaweed, um kelp sort of mix um i use uh, a liquid seaweed and then a powdered kelp um as like a bonus for nutrition for my plants um and i really do think that that makes a difference i started using it a a few years back and you can really see the plants uh perk up um and especially it's really important um, during uh, times where the plants are particularly stressed or when they're trying to set out flowers because um, they're putting a lot of energy into that. And so giving them a little boost, I think, really helps. Um, in, some, in, in the past, also, I've done uh, compost, uh, compost tea brews, um, which is, you know, partly nutritional, partly um, a way to hopefully prevent um diseases uh, that are fungal-based. Um, um, this year, I, I haven't been doing that as much just because I don't have a, my brewer set up, slash it's been so dry. Um, I have not even seen remote issues with um, you know, fungal-based. Right, diseases. right, of course. Cool. And uh, really quickly, on the uh, liquid kelp, are you are, is that in a mm -hmm. backpack sprayer? Are you diluting it and spraying yeah. it in, on the soil or on the plants or both? Uh, a little of both. Um, backpack sprayer uh, is my current tool. Um, and one of the things I've, I've done this year that I found, I got a little bit um, out of the habit of it, but I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. Um, I in the past would put on my backpack sprayer and try spraying for like four and five hours at a time. And the backpack sprayers particularly, I think are really hard on women's bodies. Like it's so much of the weight is placed upon the shoulders and um, that's not where we carry weight very easily. Mm -hmm. So I would just kill my back after four or five hours. Um, and I had back problems last, um, last summer. So, um, this year, what I tried doing was, um, to, um, just spray for one hour every day. So I would fill up my backpack sprayer in the morning. I would load it up into my car, bring it out to the, the plot. And when I jump out of the van, that was the first thing I did first thing in the morning. And I did, you know, I could fit in about two, um, 100 foot rows, um, spraying each morning. And, it really helped it become a part of my routine. It kind of, my routine got thrown off um, with all the harvesting and stuff beginning. But um, I think that's just a way better way of doing it than trying to tackle massive portions of uh, the farm at a time and wearing that sprayer for 
extended periods of time. I think that's a really good point. I think it's really easy with stuff that is very beneficial to your to your garden, mm-hmm. but not essential necessarily, or easy to believe it's not, believe is not essential. Yeah. If you don't systematize it, it's so easy for it to fall by the wayside. I mean, I bought a totally. I bought a compost uh, brewer tea brewer at the start of this year. It's mm-hmm. still in the box because I just didn't set it up in a way systematically yeah. where I could incorporate it into my weekly or or monthly yeah. kind of applications. Yeah, yeah, no. And I think it's also sometimes about doing things in small, manageable chunks. Um, like I've also been trying to do that. Well, I tried to do that more in the beginning with weeding and it was it was working pretty well um, just because that's also a, a, a task, an ongoing task that is really important. Um, and if you let it kind of go long periods between it's when it becomes more and more unmanageable. So you spend more time bent over or, you know, hoeing and it's just a real hard thing on your body versus trying to tackle it in small chunks. So Jessica, let's move on to uh, the the topic of pinching and pruning, uh, something I know pretty much nothing about with regards to flowers (laughs) anyway. So what are some general comments you can make about, about doing that through the, uh, the main part of the, of the season? So there's there's types of flowers that you can pinch and the result is you get um, more stems on the plant um, to sell. Some farmers don't pinch um, because they want one really long flower stem. So this is more typical, I would say, in larger farms, um, greenhouse settings where they're trying they. They don't really care as much about getting multiple stems off of one plant. They want one large stem, and then they're going to probably rip out the whole plant. Um, but for most flower farmers, I would say there are certain flowers that um, benefit from having a pinch. And so um, by pinching, I mean um, when the plant is between, say, anywhere between 8 and 12 inches tall, Um, you are going to, and this sounds really counterintuitive, but it really is a good thing. You actually um, pinch off the the top of the plant. um, So there's only, say, uh, three to four sets of leaves remaining. And you, so you're taking off the the apical meristem of the, the plant. And instead of sending, you know, one main leader up, you're encouraging multiple leaders to sprout out the sides. Um, And so a lot of people, I think, get nervous about doing this because you have this beautiful transplant and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I'm going to like hack it down to half the size. Um, But uh, it really makes a difference for having nice, long, um, multiple stems on your plant. Um, and so some of the plants that really benefit from this are zinnias, dahlias, um, even sweet peas, cosmos, uh, celosia, etc. And, and I'm finding, I'm, well, I'll see what happens. There's a few things I didn't pinch in time. Um, and now I'm kind of, uh, half pinching them, half harvesting them and, We'll see how well they turn out, but um, I find the easiest time to do it is if you have good-sized transplants, is to do it as you transplant. So I go, I'll pinch a whole tray, and then I'll plant all of them. Right, right. And that way, you don't have to remember to come back to it. 
Um, oh, also basil does well that way if you're going to use basil as a, a cut flower. So, yeah, I was, I was just thinking about basil as you were as you were explaining that. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, moving moving along then. Are we moving along? Mm-hmm. Is that what you wanted to say about pinching and pruning? Yeah, I guess maybe kind of leading into that too is. Um, is talking a little bit about harvesting and, and also deadheading uh, plants. Um, so, you know, your long-awaited blooms are are coming on, and when you go to do that first harvest, um, you're going to be tempted because you're going to see all these side shoots to to be like shy about taking a cut. Um, and when I first started farming, I would you know, just kind of cut it down to the next stem and try to leave the other little side shoots um, because I wanted those to grow. But I was always finding, you know, that's I I never really got very long stems on my flowers. And, um, you know, a lot of one of the important things in the cut flower world is to have fairly long stems. And so one of the things I learned um, and started doing more properly is especially on that first cut to take a really deep cut. Um, so again, that means that when I'm cutting a stem off of, um, say, a zinnia, uh, often um, one of the first uh, parts of the plant to flower is going to be a center flower. You're going to look at it and you're going to see these side shoots and be tempted to cut only to the next side shoots, but actually it's better to sort of cut down further, perhaps two or three sets of um, uh, like side shoots down. And you're going to end up, you know, just stripping off those extra side shoots because they're not going to blossom and you're going to think, oh, what a waste. However, that action is like pinching in the sense that it encourages the side shoots to grow longer. Um, and in general, like plants, um, they're, they're tougher than they look. Um, they, they like to be cut fairly hard. Like after a while, they'll, they'll lose their, their energy to produce, um, longer stems, but, um, to get really high quality, um, cut flower stems, it's good to take nice, big, long cuts out of them. Um, in addition to that, um, and this is something that I think if you're, you're, you've got a good harvest routine going on, you don't need to think about this as much, but, um, if you don't harvest all of your flowers, um, it's also good to go through and deadhead, uh, off the flowers. So pinching off, um, some of the spent blossoms and stuff, because what you're, you're trying to do is to trick the plant into producing more flowers. You don't want it to go to seed because it's going to start slowing down because it's it's done its duty. It wants it wants to get to the seed point. It wants to to continue its genetics. And so, if you um, continue to harvest into deadhead, the plant will try to continue to produce blossoms. So right. there's it's so funny. The, yeah. the last couple of things you said, there's such analogs in the veggie garden. You know, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the last thing you said, that's like the same with beans and peas you want to mm-hmm. I've always understood you want to try and keep stuff harvested the pods harvested so that yep. encourages the plant to put out more flowers uh, yep. and then in terms of uh, pinching um, it's kind of like broccoli in a sense like if you're growing a variety of broccoli that puts out one big main uh, fl- uh, flower mm-hmm. head but then starts sh- shooting outside shoots afterward 
it's always mm-hmm. tough to decide how far down to cut some stem for that main mm-hmm. that main head. Um, yeah. But so perhaps the same applies. Maybe if you do cut lower down, it's going to encourage those those coming shoots to to grow more rigorously. Yeah, and the important thing is, like, if you want the plant to to send out another flush or two of of flowers, you need to to leave enough of the plant for it to regenerate itself. Mm -hmm. And so um, at least two to three sets of leaves, and they should be nice-looking leaves. Because sometimes those bottom leaves are kind of all ragged and stuff, but they need enough leaf surface to continue you know, photosynthesizing properly and to keep the plant alive. Um, but sometimes, you know, to be honest, like I had some uh, stock flowers this year that were um, not satisfactory. And like I looked at them and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get good uh, secondary shoots out of these. So I just cut them off at the ground. Um, so sometimes that, that happens, but most of the time, especially if you're a flower farmer on a smaller scale, um, you want your plants to be producing as much stems per plant as possible, especially if you're limited on space. Right. So, so Jessica, what about harvest? And I'm I'm wondering specifically if you can think back to when you were a beginner, some of the mistakes Mm -hmm. you, you were making as you did your ongoing harvesting of your flowers. Yeah, um, harvesting and the proper time to harvest is like is a bit of there's a bit of a laundry list because every flower is different, um, and so it'd be hard for me to go into like the proper harvesting stage of um, a bunch of different flowers. So what I would recommend to, to new growers is to read up on things first, Um, you know, whether it's um, discussion groups online, a good uh, flower farmer book, um, some of the blogs like uh, Florette has really great notes about um, harvest uh, times. Um, And then the other thing is just experimenting, like some of the stuff I've sort of figured out just by cutting things at different stages and watching them in the base, like you know, I have flowers in my house partly for enjoyment, but partly from um, an experimental standpoint to see how certain things last. And, you know, so I look at something and I say, oh, you know, like I did that a little too early and it's starting to flop earlier. It didn't last as long. So it's important to take some of your product home, you know, for your own enjoyment, um, but also to watch and to see how it uh, survives in the the vase and maybe a, a few other quick points um important things about harvesting some tips is to start with with clean tools and uh clean buckets um particularly i would say clean buckets like cleaning buckets is like like one of the most annoying flower farmer chores but it's so essential that you're not reusing again and again dirty buckets because one of the ways one of the reasons why cut flowers decay um, quicker is because they absorb bacteria through their stem and it uh, they start to decay because of mm. that. And so if you have dirty buckets, um, you're going to just introduce, you know, it's a, it's a wound on the plant that you're putting in the water. And you're, if you introduce bacteria to that right away, like you're going to lessen your vase life. Yeah. Right from the um, beginning. Are you, are you sterilizing yeah. your buckets or just cleaning them? Um, so because, um, 
Because I'm on an organic certified farm, um, I just give my buckets a really good wash with uh, just a good dish soap and water. Mm. Um, but some, uh, a lot of flower farmers will sterilize their buckets, um, some with a, a bleach solution. Um, I guess I could use like a hydrogen peroxide, I believe. Um, but I find actually, you know, just really good soap and water does, does the trick pretty well. Um, and also some farmers recommend um, to clean your pruners with like an alcohol, um, especially if you're in and amongst flowers that have um, like uh, fungal infections and stuff like that. Well, Jessica, uh, you know, I know I'm busy and I know you're probably even busier and I really appreciate you taking time on your schedule to, to come to come back on the show. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Jordan. Charles Loveco is the Canada Research Chair in Sustainable Food Systems and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Lakehead University. Much of Charles's work has focused on non-waged and low-wage labor on farms, which is how I met him. I've written and podcasted about the experiences and compensation of farm laborers and interns a number of times, and as a result was interviewed by Charles and his colleague, Michael Eakers, for some research they were doing. In October, Charles and his colleagues are hosting a workshop called Ecological Farm Internships, Models, Experiences, and Justice, in conjunction with Food Secure Canada's 9th National Assembly in Toronto. Charles joins me now to talk about the workshop. Hi, Charles. Hi, Jordan. Charles, before we talk about this workshop, at which I should also mention uh, I've been invited to, to attend and participate in, um, I just thought you could talk a little bit about the context uh, you know, regarding, I guess, your work over the last number of years um, that, that led to you and your colleagues putting on this workshop? Mm -hmm. So for me, I think I need to place myself a little bit in this conversation because it is how I, I came to this topic. Uh, I was a intern on a farm for a number of years uh, in the east coast of Canada. And um, we, I ran a farm with a, with a group of people out there, and we also brought interns onto our farm. So I was, I've been involved in the kind of intern uh, experience on, on both sides, both as, a, as, a, as an intern and also as a, as a host farmer. And for me, when I went back to, uh, to, to, to university and to academia to kind of study about food systems and what makes food systems sustainable ecologically, uh, economically, and, in, uh, and socially, um, this issue was a real sticking point for me because in many ways, I think it really brings together a lot of the big questions that we're, we're facing in, in, in the food system or in the food movement. Um, because in many ways, farms, farms are kind of at a very interesting pivot point. Um, at one level, they are businesses. They need to make money to survive, to be able to sell their produce or whatever they're producing on, on their farm. But at the same time, especially a lot of the farms that we've been working with that are practicing various sorts of uh, agroecological, uh, both growing uh, of produce, but also working with animals, working with uh, ecosystems, uh, you know, regeneration, and, and, and all, a, whole, a whole range of, of practices, in many ways, they are at the forefront of, of the food movement, of, of the food sovereignty movement, um, it, it, which is really looking at the right to food, but, but also um, the way that 
that that food is really at the center of of um, you know a, a, a more sustainable future. So for me and 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 the folks I've been working with, I mean, this this question of internships is a really interesting one because um, when you look at what an internship is, it in many ways is 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 an unpaid labor situation where someone is coming onto the farm to work and they're either not getting paid or being paid a small stipend. And often interns get room and room and board um, in, in, in return for, for some of their work as well. And in, in some cases, you know, a lot of people that we've been talking to see that as completely unjust and problematic and not a very sustainable way to, to develop the agricultural sector in this country or anywhere. But at the same time, a lot of the interns that we're talking to and farmers would argue um, that there's a lot more going on than simply a labor exchange, that this is a a really important and necessary way to train new farmers, to build uh, advocates and activists that understand the food system in a more uh, in-depth way, Um, and and also just, you know, can can participate in, in the food and agricultural sector in various ways, really uh, based on their own experience and, 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 and kind of deep knowledge in that, in, in that area. So, I mean, I guess to make a long story short, the, the, I think what's really interesting about this question of internships is it really raises a lot of very important questions uh, that we need to start to think about, both you know, from a sustainability perspective, but also from a labor perspective. Right. Okay. And so I'm, you, you, you actually, in your response, gave a great summary of, of a lot of, of uh, what was covered, what, what I covered in an episode of the, of the podcast with your colleague, uh, Michael Eakers. That was episode 39, if, if, if listeners are interested. But, but now uh, I'd really like to talk about the workshop itself, uh, Charles. So, so what can people expect? So, so I'm going to be attending. You're going to be there. Uh, we're going to be the, the workshop's going to be focusing uh, on on the the experiences and perspectives of of uh, and I guess structure of of farm internships. But what can this is this is in Toronto in October? What can people expect if they want to come and attend and participate? Yeah, so the, the the workshop is in some ways a culmination of a lot of the research uh, Michael and I and others uh, in our research team um, have been involved with. Uh, for the last two and a half years, um, so part of it is one way that we want to share back some of the some of what we've learned from interns, farmers, and from uh, a wide range of nonprofit uh, folks as well who are actively supporting internships and supporting new farmer training. But this workshop is really meant to also move the conversation forward. So the way we've really tried to structure the workshop is to bring together key people who have been involved either directly or indirectly in our research that can speak to a series of issues and can, can really kind of be the, uh, be the catalyst for a broader conversation. So we have three general areas that the workshop is going to be focusing on. One is on models of farmer training and farm internships. The second area is perspectives and experiences of farm internships. And the third is around justice, law, and social movement. So the plan is to, to bring all these people together, um, to have a small panel of people um, for each of those areas I mentioned, uh, give a bit of a, a, a kind of, um, you know, big ideas and thoughts around the, 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 the current situation, but also where the conversation needs to go. And we're really hoping to have upwards of 100 people 
um, par- participate in, in this in this workshop and to use um, the, the the group of people that attend to really um, move those conversations in, in in a productive way. So it is in some ways an action uh, oriented workshop in that it's not just about talking about ideas, but we really are hoping to to come out of the workshop with some ideas of uh, ways to, to to move these move these um, these issues forward. Well, Charles, I'd like to I'd like to ask you about that because uh, so clearly. As you just said, there's 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 in in essence an agenda to this workshop uh, in terms of outcomes. But I, you know, you're also an academic, and I know you're. I've I've already got the sense from what you said earlier that your position on this is 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 nuanced uh, because it's a complicated issue. Um, so I have a sense that you're not when we when we think about the desired outcome or agenda, it's not to get every farm host to, you know. To, 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 pay a, to, to pay a minimum wage because that's the only way it should go in these internships um, because it's, it's just it's a little more complicated than that. So what, what, is, what, what do you hope will come out of this conference in terms of what's happening on farms? Is it, I mean, am I wrong? Is it to get every farmer to pay their, their, their apprentice or intern or laborers at least the minimum wage or, or is it? Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're right when you say it is nuanced. I mean, that's kind of the... This is one of the benefits of being an academic is we get to kind of play with the nuance a lot. Um, and that is, it is a privilege I recognize that we have, but it's also, I think, something that we can, we can um, contribute to, to, the, to, to what people are doing on the ground and, and the action. And, you know, I mean, the challenge as every farmer and most interns well, well understand is that farmers don't make a lot of money. So the idea of demanding that every farmer has to pay their interns is a complicated demand because for a lot of people, and we heard this from our interviews, it would just put people out of business. They, they couldn't survive. And to just simply say, well, if they can't pay their, if they can't pay their intern, they shouldn't survive. I mean, that's a whole sector of people doing really um, important uh, agroecological work and really moving food production forward in a way that, you know, many studies have shown that that is the only way that we will uh, survive as a human race into the future based, you know, when we look at issues of climate change, uh, for example. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've also seen in our, in our research, and, 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 you know, and I don't mean to diverge too much from your question, but I think it's important to say that we found some absolutely amazing programs where people weren't getting paid minimum wage, but they were getting a lot back for their work. You know, so in many cases, um, you know, what we saw was a value proposition, if you will, where the, 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 what, what interns were getting, what farmers were getting um, was there was a lot of value to both to both both sides of, of, the, of, the, of the equation. And, and I think that, you know, when, when we saw education programs uh, or intern programs where education was really a priority or where people were being treated very well, I mean, those were those were really, really you know, important things to document. At the same time, we also saw a lot of internship programs where none of that was happening, where people were being sent out to weed for, you know, 12 hours a day. They weren't getting, they had to imagine they were going to get education uh, as part of their education program, as part of their experience, and they weren't. Um, We even heard cases of abuse. I mean, we heard all kinds of, you know, terrible experiences. And I think um, part of, you know, the nuance of this is, is to also understand, you know, what is what is the situation of, of each internship, and what does it mean to have an internship um, uh, program on your farm, and and you know, paying a minimum wage may be a way to to 
to make that you know more just or, or work better. But at the same time, I think we also need to look past um, you know simply the wage as the ultimate goal in this. In that you know for a lot of the people we talk to, there's a lot there's there's, there's much interest in in thinking of alternative ways of um, you know supporting uh, this sector. So whether that's through bartering or through you know, a sharing of, well, you know, I'll give you education and room and board, and in return, you'll help with some of the work on the farm. So, I, I, you know, but, but, but those things aren't simple, and they're not straightforward. It's not something you can simply say, well, one, like X equals Y, and then everyone's happy, because they are, there is some nuance to it. So the, those are, I guess, to come back to your question, what we hope to get out of it, I think really what we want to get out of it is to have this conversation and to really, you know, maybe even start to start to document some of the the realities that uh, are, uh, you know, people are facing and also what they would like to see to ensure that internship programs are both socially just, um, you know, socially just, but, but also, um, you, know, uh, you know, maintain the kind of ecological um, and economic um, needs of, of, of farmers of the food movement more broadly. Uh, well, I'm. It, it sounds really interesting. I'm. I'm delighted that I was invited, Charles, and I can't wait to go. And and I'm sure some of my listeners, uh, this would be right up their alley. If if uh, if people are interested, they can find out a lot more information if they Google um, "Food Secure Canada's Ninth National Assembly," because this workshop is taking part in conjunction with a much larger conference on food security and food policy. And I was just hoping that. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, you could talk a little bit about about the larger conference because it it really looks like something really interesting for anyone who cares about those those topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and we've made a very deliberate effort uh, to time our workshop as part of the pre-conference to the um, the Fusker Canada Assembly, and we've, we're working with a number of groups to make that happen. So Fusker Canada has a new farmers initiative, and they're going to be sponsoring. The, the workshop as well, and one of and their chair is going to be one of the speakers on one of the panels as well. And Food Secure Canada, I mean, for those who don't know, is uh, a national or a pan-Canadian uh, food movement organization. It, uh, you know, has uh, been very active uh, supporting uh, a number of initiatives across the country since the uh, since about 2004, I think. Um, and uh, this is, as you say, the ninth. Uh, annual or ninth national assembly. Food Secure Canada uh, now meets every every second year, so uh, this will be the chance to 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 meet to participate if folks are interested. Um, it runs from October 13th to 16th, so our workshop is on the 13th, which is part of that pre-conference day, and um, there's going to be you know, a whole range of folks uh, coming to participate in that in that. In that conference, and I know one of the main focuses this year, there's two main focuses for that conference. One is around Indigenous food sovereignty, which is something that Food Secure Canada has been really focusing on, and uh, obviously a really important, uh, you know, issue to think about, especially when we're talking about land and uh, uh, what land means to, to, to food production. Um, but the other main major issue that Food Secure Canada has been very active on, um, which has come out of the work of the People's Food Policy which happened um, from to, to, uh, was released in 2011, which was a national kind of conversation around uh, food sovereignty and food policy. Food Secure Canada is now working very closely um, with groups all across the country to, to think about what 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 a 
and really develop ideas around the national food policy. So for anyone coming to our workshop or, or not and wanting to participate, um, I think actually um, uh, registration's online and you can, you can come to that. Yeah. Right. And so people who want to find out more, they, there will be links from the show notes for this episode. Uh, but if you're going to Google, uh, it's Food Secure Canada. Uh, the title of this year's assembly is called Resetting the Table. And this is all taking place uh, from October 13th to 16th of this year. And Charles, am I, I just, I better check the date of the workshop. Is it on the 13th or is it even earlier? It is on that? the 13th. Okay, so it's the on workshop's the 13th. on the 13th. And people can actually go to our website, um, which is foodandlabor.ca, to register. And there's a bit more information on the, on the front of our website as well. All right. Well, Charles Levko, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and tell us about this. I'm, I can't wait. I don't, I don't think we've met in person. I'm looking forward to meeting you, and I really can't wait to participate in the workshop in October. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, and I hope to see you and your listeners there. All right. So if you want to check out more information about that specific workshop, you want to go to foodandlabor.ca, and that is labor spelled the Canadian way with a U in there, L-A-B-O-U-R. Otherwise, check out Food Secure Canada's website if you want to uh, look into the overall conference, which I think is going to be really cool. And of course, you can find links to this stuff in the show notes, including uh, a PDF document that summarizes the workshop on farm internships that we've been discussing. All right, that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that, and I will talk to you soon. Maybe next week? Who knows? I never know this time of year. It's crazy out there. It's crazy for you, too. I know you understand, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, and remember, eat your vegetables. Then we'll run right outside of the city's reaches. We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and